Allen on politics. This is why everyone runs terrified from the idea of a universal basic income, because it's just so expensive. Together we'll stand. question is who's going to provide those necessities and the answer shouldn't be someone else under compulsion you know together we will stand every boy girl woman and a man hello that was a bit of music from canned heat and this is ellen on politics the topic for today's program is again universal basic income or sometimes called a guaranteed basic income I'm going to focus particularly on its feasibility and financing. Now, in a recent episode of this show, I did have as a topic the guaranteed basic income, and I was comparing it to a guaranteed jobs program. And my conclusion was that you don't necessarily have to have these two concepts of basic income and jobs uh, in competition with each other. They really should be each considered on their own merits in I said that the universal basic income would do better at helping people who are not able to work or who have a limited ability to work better than a social safety net program. Now, when I posted that particular segment separately on a Facebook page, I got a comment from somebody who was objecting to the idea that, uh, the implication anyway, that I would zero out all safety net programs in order to help pay for a universal basic income. And that's, of course, I can understand that even though I didn't say that, I can understand why someone would make that assumption because a lot of commentators do. A guaranteed basic income, I find myself using these terms interchangeably, so let me try to stay with guaranteed basic income, would be tremendously expensive. And one of the ways that people frequently resort to to try to pay for it would be the amount of money we spend on various social safety net programs. And that would not, even if we did shift all that over to a universal basic income, it wouldn't completely pay for a universal basic income. So it's an understandable uh, way of thinking about it. It's an understandable assumption, but I wouldn't do that. S certainly not in the initial stages of implementing a guaranteed basic income because it's not fair. And it's not fair in this sense that if everybody other than the people who are most vulnerable in terms of income are getting an automatic $12,000 a year raise, I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's fair that some people would be much better off when they're not even in need, while the people most in need would maybe be slightly better off. And I say slightly better off because probably the cash income of a guaranteed basic income would be a little more than they're already getting, but also give them the benefits of uh, peace of mind at the security of the income and less burdensome paperwork and intrusive, you know, calling them back in for examination to see if they still uh, deserve to be on the program that they're on. I don't think it's fair to do it that way. I think the, the way we determine how it's going to be paid for should shift the burdens around more fairly. On the other hand, there will be, have to be some adjustment to our social safety net programs in order to help pay for this. Now, it's not the case that the cost of maintaining a social safety net program would remain the same. At least I don't think so. And the reason for that would be that 
over time, fewer people will want to even get on the social safety net programs in the first place because, as I mentioned, there's uh, less security and a lot of burdensome process you have to go through. So fewer people would be willing to get on that if they knew there was a guaranteed basic income available. And some people who are on those safety net programs right now to get rid of those various burdens would probably just shift over to the guaranteed basic income. So in some ways, there would be less expense for the social safety net, even though we're not getting rid of it, and that money that's saved could be shifted over to the guaranteed basic income. I don't know how much, but I think it would accumulate over time. And another consideration is that in the set of proposals I'm making, everybody would have universal health insurance, as Bernie Sanders is proposing. And I'm also talking about a jobs program that would help people who don't have jobs as well. So all these things together are going to look terribly expensive. But I, I want to make uh, some distinctions between those three types of programs. First, of a jobs program, not a guaranteed job program, but a job program that tries to um, use government funds to fund socially necessary, socially beneficial work and in the process create jobs. Those jobs would be the kinds of jobs that are providing a net social benefit. That means even beyond the cost of employing people and doing whatever else you have to do to set up the program and pay for materials, society would be better off in general. And here I think the biggest example is in getting people into areas that address climate change because you can't find any higher social benefit than the survival of the human race. And that's what's being threatened by climate change. So those programs should, in a sense, pay for themselves because the net benefit to all of society will be much higher than the cost of creating those jobs. With universal health insurance, actually, we are already paying for that one way or another through our taxes and the cost of Medicare and Medicaid, and also through out-of-pocket expenditures by uh, a number of people who, who pay for it separately, and also through the costs of paying for it through your job is part of that cost comes out of your uh, potential for earning higher wages. So part of it comes out, out of that. There's already a lot of costs involved with health insurance. Currently, it will be just reconfiguring how those costs are paid for. If you institute universal health insurance where everybody's getting the same benefits. And on top of that, the total cost of our health care program should shrink. Number one, because you have less of that money going to profits for the health insurance industry and less bureaucracy by having everybody part of the same health insurance program. And also people will probably have better health and so the, their care will be less expensive. And finally, uh, the negotiating drug prices would bring costs of drug prices and probably in other areas of health care as well to bring those costs down. So job programs is worth the cost and universal health care would be less expensive than it currently is. The difference here with a guaranteed basic income is that you'll be giving money to people for just for the very reason that they exist. And that means they're not adding any net social benefit to society, although there will be benefits to society, which I can go into later in the program. But that's that's consideration. Those those three programs are different from each other in that. So let's get to the meat of this, which is 
a guaranteed basic income program, how feasible is it, and how would we finance it? You can do it, you can do it, you can do it. You can do it, you can do it, you can do it. You can do it, you can do it, you can do it. You can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And that bit of music was a cover of Ice-T's You Can Do It, performed by Brianna, also known as Miss Bree on YouTube. Let's talk about the feasibility of a guaranteed basic income in the United States. I saw an article on the internet where somebody went about trying to assess the economic feasibility of a guaranteed basic income. But I thought they were really talking more about political feasibility. So let me present you their argument and my critique of it and move on from that point. What they did is they first assessed the cost of a basic income by taking the usual figure of about $1,000 a month per person, multiplying that for 12 for the 12 months of the year for an annual income of $12,000. Then they multiplied that by the number of people in the United States, which is 300 million. So 300 million people times $12,000 a year gives you a figure of $3.6 trillion. And what they did is they compared that amount to the total revenue taken in by the United States government, which is $3.4 trillion. So the cost of a basic income would be about equal to the total revenues of the United States government, and maybe even a little higher. And to them, that said, it's not economically feasible. But if you look at the picture a little bit differently, instead of comparing it to the size of the total revenue of the government, Look at it in terms of the gross domestic product, which means the entire income of the United States as a whole, not just the government income, but income throughout the economy, which is $22 trillion. The revenues taken in by the government is about 16% of the gross domestic product. To institute a basic income according to their figures, you would have to double the revenue of the US government, which means double the percentage that it would be taking from the national economy, the GDP. Is it feasible to have a revenue base for the US government at 32% of gross domestic product? Well, according to the rest of the countries in the world, it certainly is because the vast majority of them have a percentage of 32% or better. So it's economically feasible but is it politically feasible? And I think that's the larger question. Will there be enough willingness to make the sacrifices necessary to make that big of a change to get people behind it and do it? So what, what are the prospects of a political change on that scale? Well, I've talked in previous shows about how the political system is really rigged in the favor of property owners and the very wealthy, and those obstacles still remain. I think there needs to be some change in the political system, particularly starting with the voting methods. And here, as usual, I'm going to give a little plug to start voting. But even the fact that, that the basic income would benefit materially the majority of the public, and that's because most income and wealth in the United States is very unequally distributed. The very wealthy have very much more, so that if you distributed some of that downward to make sure everybody had a basic income, that it was distributed to everybody equally. So even working people who aren't in great need would have a boost of $12,000 a year. 
the majority of the public would be better off. The problem is, of course, that the minority, the more wealthy people have more control over the government. So what you need is a mass movement, a mass constituency for an idea like this with sufficient emotional force behind it to take deliberate political action. That's something that a lot of factors would contribute to. But I want to look at one thing that goes beyond material interests, and that is the moral force of the argument for it. Because to some extent, getting people to act on their material interests is impeded by the ideology of America that we have all imbibed, which is that private property is in some ways sacrosanct, so you want to have a limited government that's not going to take a lot of taxes, and that people need to work for whatever income they have. You can't just give them money for nothing. Here, I would say, this is not a question of just helping workers who are displaced by automation or helping the people who are in most need who can't work because of physical or mental disabilities or have a limited ability to work. It's not just a matter of helping the people who are in need of a helping hand. It's a matter of basic justice. And I presented aspects of this argument before, so let me briefly recap. You cannot justify private property rights, that is, a social contract where everybody is subject to the coercive power of the government to respect private property rights unless you provide that everybody has enough access to the natural resources of the earth to survive. Private property, in my mind, is not an obstacle as long as you realize that it's founded on the basic right to life and access to the natural goods of the earth. The other thing they object to is that you know you should work for what you get. And here, I think, of course, there's some force to that. The gross domestic product is not just the natural resources that the United States claims, but it is all the labor that goes into it. On the other hand, the natural resources are there, and what would be a fair share of just that without labor? Do a thought experiment and go back to a time when there were no people around, just the earth. Now, the value of all that the, the earth itself, uh, soil, plants, animals, minerals, water. What would be the value of those natural resources in their uncultivated state if it was translated to today's dollar terms? And there, if we share that equally among all people, really the all people of the world, what would be their basic income that they should have as a right? If, everybody, if somebody else is claiming private property and excluding them from some property, how much do they have to compensate the rest of us? I think it would be much more than what is being proposed for a basic income. Now, as for the labor contribution, well, if you're going to have inheritance rights for private property, which means you're, you're getting something that your ancestors earned before you, your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, what about people whose ancestors, even in the near generations, not necessarily going way back, but in fairly near generations, were cheated out of the fair value of their labor so that they didn't have anything to pass on to their children? Now, the obvious case here is slavery. You have to go back only a few generations where, until you say some people's ancestors were enslaved and they only got the right to survive, enough to survive on, and weren't paid anything for the additional labor they were putting in, what are they going to inherit? They were cheated out of some value of their labor. If we're going to make uh, inheritance right, we should make reparations right and go beyond simply people whose ancestors were enslaved to like my ancestors and those of a great many other people who worked 
but worked for wages below what they could have negotiated for in a free market if they didn't have hanging over them the threat of starvation for themselves and their families because they didn't have a way to access the natural goods of the earth on their own, do their own hunting, fishing, foraging. If they were deprived of that, the only way to work, the only way to survive was to work for somebody else, which means they were in a superior position and could force you to work for less than your labor would really be worth. Your bargaining positions are not equal. That's an argument I also made in a previous episode where I talk about labor rights. So I think he can make a very strong moral case that a basic income is a right founded in justice so that people who find the idea attractive and would benefit them more materially have the prerogative to demand this of their government and of their fellow citizens that people have at least that enough to survive on. And it's not a matter of sympathy or generosity on the part of the other people or even a factor of how much work they in their own individual lifetime have put in. It's based on fundamental justice, access to Earth's resources for us and whatever we could have gotten from our immediate ancestors if they had access to that right as well. But let's turn now to just the practical problem of what kind of financing would we need for the basic income? That is, where does it come from? It doesn't all have to come from taxation. So how would I, uh, how would I set it up? All right, so a guaranteed basic income of about $12,000 a year for all 300 million people in the United States would cost around $3.6 trillion every year, which is a heck of a lot of money. And it's incumbent on those of us who promote a guaranteed basic income to convince people that this is practical and is not such a huge political change that it would simply be out of the question. For context, this week, as I've been preparing this show, the Congress has been coming to the end game in a fight over a couple of infrastructure bills, the larger of which is dividing the Democrats because of its cost of $3.5 trillion over 10 years. I'm talking about $3.6 trillion in each and every year for the guaranteed basic income. So comparing them, how could you ever convince people to even give a guaranteed basic income program a try? Well, I think we have to do this in a, in a, in a sense where it phases in over time and shows its benefits to people. And here's how I would do it. First of all, I would reduce somewhat the cost of a guaranteed basic income program by excluding children and limiting it to adults. It's not just to shrink the cost of it, but because of administrative reasons as well. Uh, children would have to be paid through their guardian or parent, and you always have to keep track of who actually is the guardian. So it's much easier to help children and the parents of children, the, the uh, people who have responsibilities for children, easier to help them through something like our current child care tax credit that's refundable. But we could build on that for the children and just limit our guaranteed basic income program to the adults in the United States, which brings it down about a half a trillion dollars to something like three trillion dollars, so a little better, right? I also think there should be a clawback provision. 
the intention of this is to help people who have less property at the expense of people who have more property. Again, the principle is we can't justify anyone having a claim of private property unless we're providing uh, that everybody has at least enough access to the Earth's resources to be able to survive in a decent fashion. So the aim is to help people lower down the income scale and do it not so much for people higher up. So I do a clawback vision which means my guaranteed basic income would be guaranteed for everybody to have at least as much as the basic income is giving, but not everybody would get it. So it wouldn't be universal in that sense. It'd be more like a negative income tax that the higher your income is, the less you're getting from the program. I would say about one quarter of the population, you could say up to $35,000 a year per household would get the full benefit, the upper one quarter of the population in terms of income from about $120,000 a year and upward would get none of it. They'd have, if they even applied for the basic income, they'd have to pay it all back in taxes. And the middle half of the country would have a scale in which as they move higher than $35,000, they have to give back part of that basic income um, each time their income raises over a certain threshold at the median income, that is where everybody else is either uh, half the population is below that income and half the population is above, those folks who are right in the middle would get half the basic income. Um, people who have less would be getting a little more. People who have more income would be getting a little less of the basic income. I think it would be taken away at about a rate of each time your household income was raised about $7,500 a year, you would lose about $1,000 a year of your basic income for a single adult in the household. If there were two adults in the household, they'd both have it cut. So they'd lose about $2,000 a year for every $7,500 in additional income. That brings down the total cost of the basic income program to, uh, it cuts it in half. So it'd be down to about $1.5 trillion instead of the, um, $3 trillion that we started out with. So much easier to fund, but still a big political stretch. At this point, what I'd say is the only way you can convince people to give this a try is to have it in a phase-in type of program. And I don't mean phasing in the amount of benefits you get because you wouldn't be able to test how well that was providing for people. I mean phasing it in in terms of a segment of the population getting it every so often. The one I'm considering, or that at least I want to use this as an example, is that for the first two years, one-fifth of the population would get the basic income. That means you cut down the cost of the program by one-fifth, be about then $3 billion a year for, the first, for each of the first two years. During those first two years, I'd also want to fund studies that assess how much savings we can obtained from giving that portion of the population a basic income. I would think there would be some savings because reducing poverty would mean there is uh, less need for uh, police services, for social services, for jails, for hospital emergency room visits for the people who can't afford a regular uh, medical provider. So a lot of reductions in costs as people are able to lead lives without extreme poverty and uh, some additional tax revenue, perhaps, because it would be bumping some of those people into a slightly higher tax bracket for the rest of their income. Um, also, 
you could have a stimulation of the economy. And that means that uh, the government would be taking in more tax revenue and everybody else would be doing better. We'd want to study all those things in the first two years. And the aim would be at the end of that two years, not only would the fifth of the population be enjoying the benefits of the basic income and want to continue it, but the rest of the population would be saying our turn might be next. We might be one of the ones who gets the basic income. So you're building a constituency that see that they can benefit and you're also demonstrating some of the positive benefits of this. So how would we fund the basic income in those first two years? $300 billion? I'll tell you a fairly simple way. Reverse the Trump tax cuts of a few years ago. That would add about $230 billion to U.S. government revenues every year. So right there, you're a long ways towards that $300 billion. On the opposite end, to show in a sense, in a political sense, that this is balanced, I would say all the people who are receiving the basic income and also are on a social safety net program would have their cash benefits from the social safety net program cut in half. That means they'd still be better off because they're receiving the basic income, but also getting half of their former benefits of their safety net program. Uh, and I estimate the cost of this. I'm concerned, uh, including programs such as the earned income tax credit, the supplemental nutritional assistance program, SNAP, supplemental security, income from Social Security that goes to the disabled and to seniors who don't have any Social Security earnings through the regular Social Security program, and TANF, the temporary assistance for needing family, as well as unemployment insurance. So each of those, for the people who are receiving the basic income, their income from those other programs would be cut in half. And I estimate that would free up about $65 billion a year based on a fifth of the population getting the basic income. Together, $230 billion from the Trump tax cut added the $65 billion from cutting social safety net benefits for those recipients of the basic income in half would come nearly to $300 billion. That's the way I would suggest we could fund it in the first two years. Doesn't seem like too big of a stretch. We live without the Trump tax cuts just a few years ago. And we're also saying when people get the basic income, they don't get as much cash benefit. So I think that would appeal to people as something reasonable and practical. And we could demonstrate how well the program works in those first two years. The object then would be as you get into the second couple of years and have to raise additional cash or you know shift spending from other areas that are more politically protected, you're building that constituency and building your argument that this is actually something that benefits society in other ways. And, and you can uh, there's some government savings that could then be applied to the programs. Here is where we veer towards things that are more difficult, like cutting the defense budget by a quarter, which would free up about $180 billion a year. You could also raise other taxes. I would, I would definitely focus on things like capital gains, treating it as ordinary income and taxing it at the same rate as, as uh, wages and salaries and inheritance taxes, because the idea is the burden should be primarily on those who own a great deal of property. So an inheritance tax where you lower the exemption and you raise the rate and a capital uh, gains tax where you're capturing capital gains when people are selling whatever assets they own and realizing some increase in value. Those things would be added to the pool, but that's um, not quite as much 
there's a couple of proposals that I saw that were that would have added together about seventy billion dollars a year. Maybe there's a way to bring it up higher, but not a lot higher. I think we're going to have to rely on things like a value-added tax, or Andrew Yang's idea of a social media tax of some kind, or financial transaction tax, or wealth tax, as Elizabeth Warren has considered. A lot of possibilities for reducing expenses in other areas of the budget and a lot of areas for new taxes or raising taxes but i'm not going to get too specific here because i think we should wait for the moment where we're able to get a better handle on what is possible and what's the right way to go and also the outcome of this battle in congress to see if they've already been able to pass new taxes which i doubt they have give me your thoughts on this idea this set of ideas and uh, you can leave your comments at alan on politics on the facebook page or alan on politics youtube channel I hope you got something out of it. I felt rushed at the end once again. So maybe we'll do another show on this and incorporate some of your questions and comments. Thanks, and please join us again.